All right. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, goblins and ghouls. So today I'm going to look at 10 reasons why I'm not big into nationalism. So I'm going to list what I find to be far too common in nationalism or nationalist sentiments and, of course, movements. So we're going to start right off with point number one. Nationalism often sees difference not as a resource for enrichment, but as a threat to the national community. In fact, you can see this even among nationalists and nationalist thinkers themselves. You are either on the same page or you're probably a dangerous person or a kook or a lunatic. At the very least, they'll consider you stupid. So, you know... Uh, a philosopher named Ernest Gellner wrote that nationalist thinkers, quote, did not make much of a difference. If one of them had fallen, others would have stepped into his place. The quality of nationalist thought would hardly have been affected by such substitutions. And I think you'll find that to be true today. You know, I mean, you could replace one nationalist so-called thinker with another. They're basically interchangeable. They really don't bring that many original ideas to the table, and the ones that, that they do bring are pretty destructive overall most of the time, like nine times out of ten. I don't want to be an, ab an absolutist here because, you know, that's not the way I am, but I would say nine times out of ten, something like that, you're going to get some unoriginal bland, and potentially hazardous ideas when you encounter some sort of nationalist uh, propagandist, right? So we're going on to point number two. Nationalism often aspires to enforce its ideals by force under the guise of national unity. Uh, where have we heard that word before? In a bunch of shitty places that are kind of falling apart, right? So this, of course, means that a lot of love and respect for a nation will end up being forced rather than entirely genuine. It is a love out of fear, of repercussions, and there's going to be a lot of shaming. Like, you know, if, if the kid in the classroom doesn't stand up for the national anthem, they must be some kind of weirdo or, or a deviant or something like that. Never mind the fact that, you know, like putting the hand to your heart or standing up doesn't really mean you're being loyal. You know, it's like a symbolic gesture, you know? So right on the surface, there's something phony about it. Like even, even if you sign a contract or, you know, say in a courtroom, oh, I'm not going to lie. It doesn't necessarily mean you're being genuine, right? So at best, what you have is somebody who's, willing to at least publicly pronounce certain things, but of course their behavior might be an entirely different way altogether. So, you know, to me, this stuff has always been like a phony exercise, but it's intended to, you know, make people be conformists and to fear to be a little bit different and, fr and frankly, to just make them not really think and question the society and the values around them, you know, just go along with the uh, herd kind of stuff, you know. 
So uh, we're off to point number three now. Nationalism often tolerates no criticism of itself or its leaders. So Stephen M. Walt, a columnist at Foreign Policy and Professor of International Relations at Harvard University, calls nationalism, quote, the most powerful force in the world, and even wrote an article for Foreign Policy called You Can't Defeat Nationalism, So Stop Trying. That title almost entirely matches point number three, which again is that you're not supposed to tolerate criticism of itself or its leaders. Uh, And it's also probably not as true as he claims, as nationalism is actually something that can rise or decline. You know, we physically see with our own eyes the decline of certain nations and certain leaders of nations, you know, because if nothing else, we know that people are not immortal, right? So eventually, at least certain thinkers and certain ideas are going to either die off naturally or they're just going to be defeated, right? So it's it's a little bit of a naive notion to think that we're going to be here forever, you know, we're not going to be challenged or, or defeated, of course, you know. We, we know from common sense that there will always be some sort of opposing force. So why should we kid ourselves all that much about it, right? Even under the best case scenario, like if you really are the greatest nation on earth or or what have you, however you want to phrase it, there's always the chance that something else is going to come along and surpass you in this way or that. Maybe in a good way, they'll surpass you. Like they'll have, you know, special features that your nation doesn't currently have, like all these countries that actually have superior health care than, than we do, you know, or at least superior access to health care, which practically speaking is superior health care. But that's obviously just one example. You know, you could, you could also look at these countries that are not quite as antagonistic, you know, as whatever country you might be living in. Or, you know, sometimes they might have better technology. They might have uh, a different culture that has certain values that would appeal. Some people even like a different language. You know, all kinds of different factors could exist that could help explain why your own dominant cultural beliefs might be challenged or declined. So we're going to move on to point number four. Nationalism often refuses to acknowledge or recognize the rights of any other nation or ethnic group, and often only does so to attain or enhanced, or en- sorry, enhance perceived self-interest. So yeah, that's, I don't really need to comment much more on that. So I've got point number five nationalism is of suspicion or is is suspicious of science and its attempts to study man so i think we've seen this one right society is not understood all that scientifically as a result meaning judgments tend to be rooted more in beliefs and emotions than in science and reason because obviously if if a scientific fact 
or I guess even a grand philosophical truth challenges your perception of national greatness. Well, obviously, if you're a nationalist in any strict sense, you're probably going to want to like suppress that reality and, uh, you know, become the great leader by hiding all of the flaws. And uh, I think we've seen that pattern repeatedly throughout human history. And it's unfortunate that we're going to see it again and again. I've apparently, you know, that old statement that history repeats certainly seems to be true. And uh, I think we're really living through that right now in this point in time. So point number six, nationalism often holds itself out to be a force for universal good. So, you know, the the case for nationalism is often simply that human beings would be obliterated by evil should the mighty majestic nation decline. And and it's ironic that they want to say they're for universal good when, in fact, what they really claim to stand for is the national good, you know, the nation's interests rather than the general interests of humanity. So they're really self-contradictory, and uh, I don't think they really grasp the significance of that. Like, I, I don't think you can truly be like somebody who's for universal good, yet saying, gimme, 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 gimme. I don't think that's really how that works. <laughs> and I, I really think we're seeing some of the folly of that in real time, of course. So on to point number seven, nationalism often takes the side of one nation against the rest. Well, that's sort of a given. Maybe I should have maybe I should have even put that as point number one. But you know, it's it's at the seventh spot. And we're at number eight now. Nationalism often, though not exclusively, holds the so-called white man's burden of civilization as its purpose. And uh, again, even that idea hasn't died off yet. You know, that's something that's been around for quite a long time. You know, the idea that, oh, you just have to set all these other countries right by invading them and conquering their cultures and, you know, putting in a a McDonald's, installing a dictator or, you know, blah, 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 you know, just doing all this kind of you know, jingoistic stuff and basically teaching people how to be, you know, the the way you want them to be, you know, like give them a different religion, uh, mandate they speak a different language, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, some of you might think, oh, Wade's just picking on America or whatever. But other other countries do that too. You know, let's let's be real. For example, um, Turkey at one point had banned the Kurdish language, which I would say is not a good thing. You know, anytime a country wants to ban a language altogether, you know, it should raise your eyebrow. You should say, oh, that's a little bit fascistic. Well, it's not just a little fascistic, it's highly fascistic, but you know, the point remains. All right, and now we're moving on to point number nine which is nationalism often refuses to admit to mistakes and failure. Ooh, that's a big one. Again, I I might have even put that in one spot too, 
because that's that's a huge part of why these nationalist movements actually take shape. It's about, you know, covering for a fragile ego or, or what have you, because people don't want to admit that they made mistakes or failed or, you know, committed some crimes in the past, you know, as a nation state. And uh, of course, you know, admitting that would jeopardize a nation's conservative ability to stay frozen in time by glorifying the past. We will always be made great again by omitting our past egregious flaws and atrocities, even more so if the atrocities are still happening today. So that's, you know, one of the reasons why people cling to these, uh, you got to stay frozen in time or even turn the clock back kind of movements because, you know, how dare you, you're too woke, you're revealing the truth about, you know, what actually is happening when the, when the United States does stuff or other countries too. It can definitely be other countries. It's not like I'm just talking about America, but you know, this is, this is where I live. Um, so on the point number 10, nationalism often regards those who don't share its feelings as morally inferior. So critics will always challenge the worth of nations. So nations will always challenge the worth of critics. Often in addressing the critics, a nationalist will make no serious effort to prove their case. Rather than saying which values or words are being misinterpreted by, misinterpreted by the critics of nationalism, they will simply emphasize how the critic is useless or terrible for their crime of independent thought and challenging, challenging narratives of greatness or what have you. You know, it's just... You know, if, if you're criticizing the nation, you're jealous or something. It's actually similar to, uh, I think the guitarist from Creed once said that, you know, the, the critics of their band are just jealous. It's really pretty similar, actually. <laughs> like, it's, it's really that kind of uh, mentality that's sort of low. Uh, if you're criticizing me, you're just jealous of my greatness. You know, it's it's just, I don't know, it's, there's just something pathetic about it. So, you know, the word nationalism was first used, or known to be used, in 1798, from, from what I understand, I did look into it, and to me it seems safe to say that nationalist attitudes and behaviors have not significantly changed in all those years since. In fact, maybe some of them, maybe some ideas have even gotten worse in some ways, especially in the context of where we are as a society. You know, we should actually be beyond a lot of these ideas. We've seen them fail spectacularly. You know, they gave us two world wars for one thing, you know, and uh, they've destroyed not only the countries invaded by superpowers, but They've, they've obviously threatened the superpowers themselves, and some of them have even been destroyed, of course, you know. So, basically, if you are a rigid nationalist, expect to be not only rejected at times by, you know, people who have, you know, more of a fair-minded approach to global issues... But, you know, domestically, expect them to be like, no, I'm not, 
I'm not that way. I'm not going to go along with your bull crap. You know, I'm, I, I, I believe more in universal values rather than pretending there's some national greatness or whatever. You know, how about more individual greatness? And beyond that, you know, maybe greatness itself isn't always so great, you know? I mean, I hate to sound like a pessimist, but there's always the chance that a comet or something like that is going to strike the earth and wipe out all these great nations anyway, you know? So, I mean, we could easily go the way of the dinosaurs or the dodo bird or what have you anyway. So if we're just constantly patting ourselves on the back and pretending we're so great and our feces don't stink, you know, I mean, what does that say about our national pastime? You know, if we're really that great, do we really have to keep telling ourselves all the time that we are? It just seems seems a little bit desperate, like we're on the defense, if that's really how we have to spend so much of our time. <laughs> but anyway, um, that's really all I have to say about it for now. And uh, hopefully you add some laughs or whatever from this episode. Um, yeah, have a good day.